Hi. Um, I'm Derek. I'm on staff here, part-time, Cross Point, and waiting in the States as my wife and I are preparing to head back overseas, which is our normal context. Not so much Greenville. Um, but we've very much enjoyed our time here. We've been here for um, about 10 months now. And we'll be back overseas before the summer. So that is one way you guys can be praying for us. Um, turn with me, if you will, to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4. The tradition here at Cross Point is that we begin our time by praying for another local body. And so we'll continue that today as we begin. Let's pray. Father, I want to lift up St. John Missionary Baptist Church to you today as they're meeting. Thank you for their ministry here in Greenville. Um, thank you for the light and the salt that they have been and that they are being in this community. I pray for them as they're preparing to, to bring on a new pastor, Virgil Lockhart. I pray for his family. I pray for his marriage, that you would protect him from the attacks of the enemy, that their marriage would put the gospel on display, that he would be first and foremost concerned with his worship, with his obedience, with leading his family well, and that in doing so, he would be a model to his community of believers. Um, I pray that you would use that group to share gospel, to minister to those around them. Father, I don't know exactly how their leadership is set up, but even if he is one that everybody is looking to as the one main guy, I pray that there would still be an abundance of counselors around him that would be speaking in so that there could be plurality and wisdom and leadership. Thank you for time this morning. Thank you for a time when we as a body can lift up our voices together corporately. It is a beautiful thing that throughout the week we can all be worshiping in our prayers and our time in the word and our obedience and our serving. And it is also a beautiful thing when your saints can come together and do so corporately. Thank you for a time of breathing in, a time of encouragement a time of opening up your word uh, to find out what's inside. Let us approach your word with joy and also with holy reverence. Father, get me out of the way. Father, let us hear what you want to say to your people. Um, Father, I confess my own weakness very much up front. I love diving into your word. I love everything about communicating it, Father, but there is nothing in me that enjoys every eye in the room being on me at the same time. So, Father, let me melt away and let your word take precedence. Let your word be prominent. Let us glean from it the truth that you want us to glean. That we can walk in a manner worthy of the calling this week as your children as your body. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, all right, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
We're going to focus on verse 7, but we're going to start off reading verses 1 through 12 to give us a little bit of, of context. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Before we fully dive in specifically to verse 7, we're first going to consider the context a little bit. The two letters that we have that were written by Paul to the church, or more specifically the group of house churches that were located in Corinth, are generally retrospective and pragmatic. This means that in contrast to letters like Romans and Ephesians that deal with lots of broad, sweeping, general theological concepts, and it's where we get, when we want to get into kind of a lot of our, our pure wording of our theology, we go into those type books. In Corinthians, Paul is writing to practically address very, very specific problems that were plaguing the Corinthian believers. In these, think of Paul as a shepherd who is trying to walk with his sheep so that they stay on the path. Think of Paul as a captain trying to steady the ship through rough waters. That's the feel that you get as you're reading through the Corinthian letters. Of all the letters that Paul sent to specifically churches, you have, you have ones that he, spent, that he sent to individuals, but you have ones that he sent to to churches. Of all those letters, 2 Corinthians is the most personal. It's the most autobiographical. It's where we see Paul talking about his, his self, his own ministry, and how he thinks through things the most when it comes to letters to churches. He had invested much in the welfare and the health of the Corinthian believers, and he was unwilling to shirk in his responsibility to help pull them out of the ditch because they seemed to be pretty consistently in the ditch. One of the purposes of 2 Corinthians is to explain the nature of Christian ministry. The joys, the pains, the rewards, the struggles, everything that goes into to ministering to others. We see this especially in chapters 3 through 6, which if you'll note, our text in chapter 4 lies in that. Paul was an apostle, and he was talking about Christian ministry, and specifically from the, from the context of an apostle but included in the application is Christian ministry for every believer in the new covenant. And so we're going to use the term ministry today. When we use it, 
don't think of it in, oh, he's talking about ministry. He's talking about the, the church leaders. He's talking about the people overseas. He's talking about the people that, that run X ministry, wherever it happens to be. When you hear the word ministry this morning, think of it in terms of every single believer is called to minister. Think in terms of Ephesians 4, where it says that you have these, these people, this group, this leadership that's equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry doesn't just belong to a group of church leadership people. It's equipping the saints, everyone who is called by the name of Christ for the work of the ministry. And so as we dive in uh, to the text, this is going to be showing us how to think about ministry, how to think about Christian ministry. It's going to help and help us form a biblical mindset as we move outward in ministry. Ben was talking uh, about a month ago when he was um, talking with, uh, with the deacons um, as, as new deacons were being appointed about ministering to the church inside the walls and what it looks like to be ministering outside the walls of the church. It's funny how God works because I'd, I'd been planning on talking through this stuff for, for some time now, for a few months. And in the last couple of weeks, God has put some things together. If you guys remember Scott talking last week in Psalm 146, the terms that we use for that, uh, sometimes I'm going to throw out some terms and I'll qualify them. We have a certain way of talking when we're overseas. We, we use certain terms, and they mean a whole lot to us because we talk about things a lot. What last week was is we would refer to as breathing out. Um, there's a rhythm to, to, to believers. There's a, there's a rhythm to church as breathing in, breathing out. And think of it just as a person, normal person. If all you ever do is breathe in, things aren't going to go well. At the same time, if all you ever do is breathe out, things aren't going to go well. It's the same way in church. It's the same way in believing. There's a breathing in to two believers. There's a coming together. There is a corporate worship. There is an encouragement from the word. There is a praying together. There's a watching each other's back. There's everything that goes into that. And at the same time, there is a breathing out. There's getting outside the walls. There's a ministry to people who don't know Christ. There's sharing it. There's taking the truths that have been discussed here and fleshing them out on a random Tuesday on a random Thursday when everyone is not around watching you and you have to decide if those truths were going to stick with you, were going to help guide the way that you think and what you do. Um, and so in last week, Scott was talking about a breathing out. He was talking about North Greenville. He was talking about sharing Christ with people around you and serving them. I know a lot of you guys are already doing that. And so there's an encouragement behind this of equipping you to do so more and more. And for those that think about that and are scared to death and want to run back to inside the walls of the church, this is going to be an encouragement to push you out and how to do so. Not just kicking you out saying good luck, but hey, here's how you do it. Here's part of the mindset of getting out and ministering to people outside the walls of the church. And so Scott gave the alley-oop in that we need to be out there. And so this text is going to help inform us how to do so. We're gonna be asking three main questions from the text. We're gonna spend our time here this morning answering those three questions and talking about the implications of those answers in shaping our mindset from ministering to those outside the walls of the church. There are certain core truths that God wants us to have in our head as we minister to those who don't know Christ. 
so that we can stay healthy, we can stay balanced, we can do so in a Christ-exalting way. They're anchors. They're general principles that give us guidance as we wade our way through the thousand specific situations that come up. We can't make a thousand different rules. There's no good in doing that. And so instead of being rules-based, we're going to be principles-based and understanding that there are some core truths in Scripture that are going to guide all of these different things that we can be thrown into. The next two weeks, we're going to be discussing one principle specifically. Um, It's going to be one core truth that, to be honest, we should have in our minds every single time we go to minister to those around us. Um, All right. Chapter 4, back into verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So the first of our three main questions is going to be, he uses the term, we have this treasure. What does he mean by this treasure? We're not going to spend a whole lot of time discussing the first question because it's pretty straightforward, but without the first question, without the treasure, nothing else really matters. And so we have to start here one way or the other. He calls it this treasure, which means it's something he's already referred to in the text. And so what we naturally do is go back into the immediate context. Go back to the verse before. Look in chapter 6. Or sorry, verse 6. In verse 6, we read that God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul states it another way. Look in verse 4. In verse 4, he says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So the treasure is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. It's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The treasure is the gospel push pause very quickly before we move on. When I say the treasure is the gospel, I'm going to help understand exactly what we mean by, by gospel because there are, other, there are other ways you could phrase it. Um, you know, you say the gospel is, is the good news, okay? Here, we're going to use gospel in a broad sense. We, we see it as the gospel of the glory of Christ. Uh, Piper has a book called God is the Gospel. And so, when we say the term gospel, it's going to encapsulate all of this. It's an understanding that the treasure is the gospel. The treasure is the gospel because the treasure is Christ. The treasure is the good news of Christ. It's the good news of what God has done for his people. Um, It's Colossians talking about Christ in you. And so when it says the treasure in jars of clay, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so when we say the term gospel, it's going to, to include all of that. We're just going to use the term gospel to talk about it. Another term that is connected with that, that Jesus would use a lot, is kingdom of God. He would say the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is here. Um, Later on, I'm going to get you to turn to a few places, but there's a lot of scripture here and there I'm not going to get you to turn to, but I'm just going to get you to listen to, to see the connections. Gospel and kingdom are linked. In Matthew chapter 4, it says, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching, their, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew 9, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction 
Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So think gospel kingdom, gospel kingdom, they're linked. Then we go to Matthew 13, when Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So the gospel of Christ is the pearl. The gospel of Christ is the treasure that he's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, that we have this treasure in jars of clay. So whenever we unpack a term like that this morning, we're going to instantly go to what implications does this have on the breathing out, on ministering to others outside the walls of the church. And so what are the implications of understanding the treasure as the gospel have? How does that affect our mindset in ministering to others? Remember 2 Corinthians 4, 7, the treasure's in the jar. You hold the treasure. So how do we serve as those who hold the priceless treasure? The first question we have to go to in asking that is simply, do we really value the gospel as treasure? That's where we start. Without that, all the rest of this stuff becomes peripheral. Do we truly value, do you truly value the gospel as treasure? Do you truly value the good news of Jesus Christ above all else? Would you sell everything you own if that was the only way to obtain the gospel? Would you give your life for it? Is the gospel just another item trying to make it on your busy to-do list? Or is it consuming? Is it pervading? Is it influencing every single thing you do? Those are tough questions, but they're questions that separate what A.W. Tozer would call the children of the burning heart from those that are simply playing church, from those that are holding to a form of the gospel without ultimately treasuring the Savior. That is the message of the gospel. Those are the questions we start with because unless your worship is where it needs to be, then your proclamation of the treasure, your telling of the truth, will be nowhere near what it needs to be. If you are not seeing and savoring Christ, you have nothing to give. If you are not being poured into by the Spirit, you have nothing to pour out into those around you except your own best intentions and your own opinions. And that is simply not going to do the job that Scripture tells us needs to be done. So do you treasure the gospel as treasure? And if you do, then are you ready and willing and actively seeking to give that treasure away? When you think of sharing gospel, I was there. I was there for a lot of years. What it seems like, nobody ever told me this up front, but somewhere along the way as a kid, what I understood of sharing the gospel is I'm supposed to be a salesman. 
and the gospel is my, my product. And what I need to do is corner somebody and give them my best sales pitch. And if they reject it, I lose. If they accept it, I win. Either way, they were simply a customer and I move on to the next target. I am not a good salesman and therefore I refused to share the gospel. And if I ever got into a situation where it seemed like I was being led to share the gospel, I was terrified because there's nothing in me that wanted to do it. There are a lot of things that went into that. One of the things that went into that is I didn't see the gospel as treasure. It wasn't something so highly valued. It wasn't the pearl of great price. It wasn't the treasure that I would go and sell a field for because it's more important than anything else. Because if it is more important than anything else, there's nothing that's going to stop me from taking the opportunity to share it. We have another thing we talk about on the team sometimes, big pie, small pie mentality. What that means is there are people out there as you're working, as you're talking in life, they're small pie people. What that means is they're always competing, they're always posturing, and in their mind, they say, look, there's only so big of a pie, and for you to have a bigger piece means I have to have a smaller piece. And so we're going to fight for our piece, and we'll see who the best man is. Gospel's not like that. When you give away gospel, you don't give away something that you had that you no longer have. Gospel is big pie. You give away gospel, and there is more gospel there. You pour yourself out, and there is more in the cup, because God has poured in. And so when you think gospel, think big pie mentality. Keep giving it away. There will be more. Also, when you think sharing gospel, think building bridges instead of building barriers. What we mean by that is when you think of sharing the treasure, you can talk about the gospel as treasure. You can also talk about, you can phrase the gospel in a lot of ways. When it comes down to it, the gospel itself is offensive. The gospel is offensive. To be told that you can't do it on your own, that you need something outside of yourself to save you. That's offensive. To be told that you're not worthy, that you're not good enough, that you can't save yourself, all of that is offensive. And so the gospel itself is offensive. Let the gospel be offensive. It's not your job to be offensive. We see this over and over with people. They think, well, the gospel sometimes hits people right in the jaw, and so I'm going to see it as my job to hit somebody right in the jaw. That's not your job. That's the gospel's job. Let the gospel do its job. Let the gospel be what seeps into somebody's mind and heart and destroys them and ruins them for the glory of God. Your job is to build bridges. Your job is to do what you can to take down distractions, to take down everything that's getting in the way of someone hearing the gospel. All this goes into the gospel as treasure. If the gospel is treasure, do we see it as treasure? If we see it as treasure, are we sharing it? as treasure? That's the first question. Second question, let's go back into the text. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Why are believers called jars of clay? This imagery would resonate with those in Corinth because Corinth was actually pretty well known for its pottery. And so Paul knew his audience and so he could talk to them about a jar, and they would know what he was talking about. But the imagery goes a lot deeper than that. He's not just connecting with the Corinthians. He's also connecting with the Old Testament because the Old Testament consistently refers to humanity in terms of clay, 
in terms of dust, in terms of pottery. Think back to Genesis 2, the very beginning. Where did he make man from? The dust of the earth. I spent some time in Job this week, and Job also uses, his friends use a lot of imagery from the dust of the earth in Job 4. One of Job's friends is talking. He says, even in his servants, he puts no trust. And his angels, he charges with air. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, those whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. We are the houses of clay. We are those whose foundations are in the dust. And then probably what I got tickled the most with looking at Job, one of Job's other friends says, behold, I am toward God as you are. He's talking to Job. He says, behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Um, that's been the imagery that stuck with me this whole week of if you could look at what the Old Testament says about people, it's I too am just pinched off from a piece of clay. That's the best I got. Um, when, I, when I try to aggrandize myself, when I try to think of myself as somebody really important, I can always go back to, you know what? God sees you and me just the same. We are both pinched off from a piece of clay. That's the imagery that the Old Testament uses over and over. We are, as humans, we are very earthy people. We're attached to the dust of the earth. We're attached to the clay. What Paul does is he says, look, this imagery is not just Old Testament. This imagery is New Testament. You haven't gotten any better <laughs> as who you are. Um, you're still dust. You're still clay. We're going to hit on a couple of characteristics of jars of clay that are going to help us flesh out and understand what Paul is talking about, how we understand ourselves in doing ministry as jars of clay holding a treasure. First characteristic is jars of clay, earthen vessels are fragile. I'm not going to get you to turn there yet, but in Daniel 2, you, the, setting the scene, it's Daniel talking with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, pretty, pretty important guy. He was having dreams that troubled him. Nobody could tell him what they were. And so he was about to kill all of his wise men, all of the guys that were supposed to be giving him, giving him spiritual info. And Daniel says, wait a second, God can interpret dreams. And so Daniel comes and Daniel interprets his dream. In the dream, there was an image, large person that was made of different types of material. It says the head was of fine gold, the chest and the arms were of silver, the middle and the thighs were of bronze, its legs were of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And in Daniel 2:42 it says, and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. The clay is the brittle part. And so all we're doing here is setting the stage that clay is seen as brittle. Set it up juxtaposition. You've got all of the irons. You've got the gold. You've got the, the iron. You've got the silver. You've got everything over here that's seen as holding together. And over here, you've got the clay. And he says, when you put the iron and the clay together, they don't mix because the iron will always be strong and the clay will always be brittle. No matter what you do to it, it's still breakable, it's still fragile. Into more specific clay pot imagery, we go to Jeremiah 18, 
even as it's being made, clay jars are fragile. Jeremiah 18, it says, and the vessel that he was making, he being, Jeremiah was watching a potter as he was working. The vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hands, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter. Pottery is weak. I don't know if you guys have spent a whole lot of time around, around clay pots. We see a lot of it in the Middle East. You walk into a room of clay pots, and you feel like if you look at one of them wrong, they're going to break. You feel like if you sneeze, everything in the room is about to be destroyed. And so you walk on eggshells, you walk lightly, because pottery is fragile. I thought they had to, yeah, they got these guys up here. I was like, ah, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to grab one of those jars and like crash it and everybody's going to understand what I mean. And Cody said they're made of ceramic. I was like, dang it. Um, so if I had a pot, I would smash it right now. But if you do anything to a clay pot, it is going to crack. Um, it is going to burst. It does not hold up well to anything at all. It is very, very fragile. When you hear of them excavating ancient cities, what is the one thing they always find? It's broken pottery. Rarely do you ever see them find a piece of pottery, clay pottery, that's intact. Why? Because it breaks. It always breaks. Walls stay together. Wells stay together. Coins stay together. Arrowheads stay together. Pottery doesn't stay together. It breaks. It always breaks because that's the nature of pottery. It's what pottery does. Every single time, it's just a matter of time. And so the imagery serves to show Paul's weakness set up against the power of God. We'll get more into that in just a little bit. First, we're going to talk about the implications for being frail for ministry. One of them is that ministry is tough and we are frail. So something, if we're going to hold together, something has to hold us together. This is going to be the first of two connections that we're going to look back into a sermon that Brad Cardwell had a few weeks ago into Second Corinthians chapter 12 when he was talking about validation, he was talking about conceit, he was talking about contentment, because something has to hold the pot together. And so, what are you going to look to to hold yourself together? Most of us, our first option is going to be conceit. We want to look at ourselves and say, look, I can do this. I know most pots break, doesn't mean I'm going to break. I am of a different quality than most pots. Different meaning, I am better. Other people crack because they're weak. I'm not weak, I'm strong. That's the mindset. I'm gonna hold myself together. That's conceit. Over and over and over, scripture says, you can't hold yourself together. That's the gospel. You never could hold yourself together. Something else has to hold you together. If we don't go to conceit, then we go to validation. I'm going to look to someone else and the good thoughts that they're thinking about me, their view of me, their respect for me, that's going to keep me together. It's tough out there. The world's a tough place. As you get in and get your hands dirty, ministering to others is confusing and it's tough. What's going to hold you together? Is it conceit? Is it thinking that you're good enough that you can do this? Is it validation? Are you going to look around you hoping that somebody's going to say something good enough that's going to hold you together that day? and that you're not going to fall apart? Or are you going to look to the gospel? Something has to hold you together. 
the only thing that is going to hold you together over time with any health is going to be God himself. That's the way that you were designed. As a clay pot, you were not designed to hold yourself together and no one else is gonna be able to hold you together except God. You have to have that in your mind as you are out serving others. You are out ministering to others. You can't seek for their approval to hold you together. You can't seek feeling good about yourself because you did something good for somebody today to hold you together. It has to be God to hold you together because you are fragile and you are frail and you will break and so will I every single day. There's another part of being fragile we're gonna cover a little more next week, but it has to do with suffering. As we said, what happens to a pot when it undergoes any type of stress, it breaks. So for now, we'll simply say the nature of the pot's not to hold together under stress. And in ministry, you're gonna have stress. You're gonna have confusion. You're gonna have doubt. When you take yourself outside of the neat, the nice, the pretty, and you're ministering to others, whether it's inside the body or out, things get a whole lot more difficult. The things that seemed really easy to do when you were just sitting in the Bible alone in your room and said, the Bible says, yeah, you need to be patient with others. You're like, yeah, yeah, we do. I feel like I'm really good at that. And then you meet the first person that day. If you didn't see anybody else that day and you're on your way to work and the first guy that pulls out in front of you, you are ready to, if there was a rock, you would take it and throw it at his car. And then you look back at Scripture and you're like, Ah, well, maybe patience wasn't quite as easy as, as I thought it was because people make life messy. That's the point. Life is relationships. It's about connecting with other people and people are messy. They are always messy. It's just the nature of doing it. And so when you dive into that, there's gonna be suffering. When there's suffering, you're gonna break because that's what clay pots do unless something is holding you together. And it has to be God holding you together. That's the only way it works. Um, we all on the same page here? Are we good? Um, all right, so the first characteristic of a clay pot is it's fragile. The next characteristic is it's expendable. Psalm 31:12 says, I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. Earthen vessels, clay pots, had no enduring value whatsoever. They were so cheap, they were so common, that when they were broken, no one would, ever, would even bother to mend them. They were thrown out. They were easily broken and easily replaced, so they were not worth repairing. Now, what is the implication of that for you? You're like, oh, wow, that's depressing. Thanks. It doesn't mean you're cheap. It doesn't mean you're, you're worthless. Um, although you may be treated like that, and that's going to be part of the point of, of the context we'll get into next week of as you minister, you will be treated in all of these ways. You'll be treated as one who is worthless. You'll be treated um, as one who has zero value whatsoever. But the point here isn't necessarily that, that you're cheap, that I'm cheap, that we're worthless. It is that we are not nearly as important as we think we are. That we don't play nearly as vital role in God reaching the nations as we think we do. That's something that I need to be reminded of regularly. And that's one of the implications for ministry. We work with, with IGO. Brad's connected with IGO. IGO does, does good work. They send students all, all over the globe. 
before they go overseas, they get a set of, of core values, like we're talking about today, things that guide how they think through everything. The one that's connected with this is they walk them through the idea of ancient work. What ancient work means is when a student gets on a plane and goes to China, that student isn't bringing Jesus to China. Jesus didn't get on a plane with them and ride over there and get off with them and go, oh, great, I'm glad you went to China. I can finally get here. Jesus was already there. He was there long before they got there. He will be there long before they leave. They have the opportunity and the privilege of being a part of what God is doing. They have the opportunity of walking in obedience in their short, fragile life so they can be a part of the bigger picture. That is the blessing. That is the beauty of ancient work. There has been an ancient work that has been going on since the beginning of time. God is working. God is moving. God is using all the players. God is using all the pieces. God is putting things where he wants them, when he wants them, and how he wants them. And we are not nearly as important as we think we are. He wants us to be a part. He allows us to be a part. He does not need us to be a part. And if you walk away in disobedience, his will will still be done in reaching the nations, in reaching this community. It is our blessing, it is our privilege to be a part of it. But when it comes down to it, believers are expendable. And that is difficult for us to hear, but that is truth from Scripture. It's difficult for me to hear. Doesn't mean worthless because we actually have value from the treasure, but it means we are not as important in reaching the nations and the will of God as we think we are. We're expendable. God's going to see his will done regardless of what decisions you make this week. But he commands you to walk in such a way that you will be a part of what he's doing. That's the blessing that he offers to you and to me. But when it comes down to it, we are expendable. Another characteristic of a clay jar is that they are simple and they are unimpressive. Very, very simple. It's funny that it doesn't say we have this treasure in a golden chalice, in a beautiful urn, and a nice bronze vessel. It was put in something of very, very little beauty. Something from the dirt, from the clay, that was molded together and set on fire so that it keeps its shape. But when it comes down to it, it's still just shaped dirt. Very, very simple. Not a lot to it. Not a lot of jewelry on it. Not a lot of ornaments. There's nothing from the outside that would draw anyone to it. It's not impressive at all. This is the message that you guys, in my time here, this is one of the messages that you guys are constantly getting from, from Crosspoint. It's, it's the unimpressive. It's the three-mile-an-hour walk. All of that is, is going in the same direction. It's, it's meaning the same thing. As believers, we are simple, we are unimpressive. Clay jars, they lack outward luster compared to the treasure, so much so that their cheapness could make people think that there is nothing of worth inside of them. Have you ever thought that? By my weakness, by the things that I struggle with, in my role as a jar of clay, sometimes I feel 
that when somebody looked at me from the outside, they would never even guess that there is an invaluable treasure inside. That's the beauty of it. That's part of the gospel is showing that. Um, and we'll get more into that in just a second. It reminds us of our need to say with the psalmist, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. What are the implications for ministry? There are two things we're going to talk through. These are two things that we go through on our team constantly as we get students in, as we work with people. One of them is a reminder to stay simple. In ministry, we need to stay simple. That doesn't mean that everything in Scripture is simple. I mean, you have Peter saying that, that yeah, as I read some things in Paul, some of them are hard to understand. That is true. And as we're, as we're diving into to Scripture, we're, we're seeing all these connections, and, and there's a lot to it, and, and it's easy to get lost in that. And that is all very, very true. When we turn that into how do we minister, think, keep it simple. Don't try to burden yourself down with trying to make it complex. The commands of Scripture, the things that his people are to be about are very, very simple. A phrase that we use often is simple, not easy. Things we're commanded to do are excruciatingly simple. Loving others, serving others, things like that. It's, it's very, very simple. It's just not easy. That's the difficulty of it. When, when we walk in disobedience, when we don't take advantage of an opportunity, it's not like we can look to God and say, well, I would have liked to have done it, but it was a little bit too complicated. Like, no, no, no. You didn't do it because it was too complicated. You didn't do it because you understood it and you didn't want to do it. But, but obedience, walking in that, is simple. Keep it simple. As you're out ministering to folks, don't overcomplicate things. Don't overthink serving others. It's very, very simple in the way that you walk, in the way that you serve. The other thing is, don't try to impress people. Something we walk through with students often is drop the pose and own the truth. Drop the pose, own the truth. And what that means is, nobody cares if you look like the most spiritual person in the room. Nobody cares. It doesn't impress anybody. What matters is walking in obedience. Simple, unimpressive, without a lot of lights, without a lot of attention, without any pats on the back. We talk through sharing the gospel. Uh, a lot of people say, well, it takes this many times, seven times or 10 times or 20 times um, for someone to hear the gospel before they really start opening up to it. And so the question behind simple and unimpressive is, are you willing to be number two? Are you willing to be number three? Are you willing to be the person that gets no attention, no glory, no pats on the back, no thanks, no anything, except the joy of walking in obedience? No fanfare, nothing. The opportunity was there, and you walked in obedience, and that was it. You didn't try to impress anybody. You didn't need anybody to look at you and validate you or confirm you because you didn't need to impress them. Jar of clay is simple. It's unimpressive. Our ministry has to be simple. It has to be unimpressive. We can't constantly need people to look at us and validate us as we minister to those around us. 
That's not what's pouring into us. These are all connected. That's not what's holding the pot together. What's holding the pot together is the presence of God in your life. And that's it. And from the outside, they, that may look as unimpressive as you can get. It's not the point. The point is a walk in obedience and that as a jar of clay, you are holding the treasure and doing what you're supposed to be doing with it. The thing that's probably hit me the most as I've been studying this week has been that we are not simply a jar of clay on our bad days. At our very, very best, we're a jar of clay. On our best days, when we have brought our A game, when we are bringing the 110%, at our very very best, your jar of clay. You don't have pot of gold days and jar of clay days. You don't get up and look at yourself in the mirror and be like, that's right, who's the pot of gold today? No, that doesn't happen because you don't have pot of gold days. That's not what, what scripture talks about in terms of believers. Every day at your best is a jar of clay day. That's, that's the norm. It's not a phase. It's not like, well, I know I'm a jar of clay now, but eventually, if I'm a really good Christian and I read my Bible a certain amount and I do this, this, and this, and I jump through the hoops, eventually I'm going to be a pot of gold. I'm going to be a nice little golden chalice that then holds the treasure, and then everybody's going to be happy, especially me. At our best, we're a jar of clay. That's the norm for believers. You will always be fragile. That's the point. We're supposed to be. And so you're not just a jar of clay on your bad days. I'm not just a jar of clay on my bad days. At our best, we're a jar of clay. So don't wait until you've got it all together before you go out, serve the community, and share Christ with those around you. Because one, you're never going to have it all together. And two, if you do get it all together, God's just going to take it all back away to save you from being conceited. That's the way it works. We're supposed to be a jar of clay, nothing more. Okay. Third question, back into the text. Verse seven, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So the third question is, why put the treasure in an earthen pot? Why put the treasure in a jar of clay? And it tells us flat out in verse seven, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Still Paul talking, still Paul writing to the Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The treasure was put in an earthen pot to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It was to show that the treasure has nothing to do with the vessel. That's what it's talking about here. The treasure has nothing to do with the vessel. Now, many of you are wise. 
Um, not many of you were strong. You were weak. But God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the things in the world that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. God chose to put the treasure in jars of clay, in fragile, breakable, unimpressive earthen vessels to show that the treasure has nothing to do with the vessel. To show that the best way to put it, the best way to put it is the treasure has nothing to do with the vessel. Um, it would have actually in some manner skewed the message if it would have come in in a golden a golden jar. Um, the treasure has nothing to do with the vessel. God turns around the conventional wisdom of the world because the conventional wisdom of the world says that you earn God's favor, that you work your way into deserving the gospel, that it has anything at all to do with you. That's the wisdom of the world. And God saying, Paul saying that God turns the conventional wisdom of the world around to show that the treasure has nothing to do with the vessel. That's why it comes in a jar of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. There's a term, I don't know if you guys have ever heard the term, the medium is the message. What that means is from a guy who wrote a book. A guy who wrote a book back in the 60s, and he used the phrase, the medium is the message. And what that means is that the medium through which something is, is conveyed, how something is conveyed, actually plays a part in understanding the message itself. How you communicate something actually affects what was communicated. To give you a bit of a grasp of it, if, if I were president of the U.S., bear with me, and you were the head of state from another country, and I wanted to invite you over to honor you, am I going to send you an invitation handwritten, scribbled on a napkin? No. I'm going to send you an invitation that by the invitation itself shows you honor. So by the message, by the medium that it was sent, you understand that I want to honor you. Think of parents. I'm not a parent, but I know some really smart ones, and they tell me things. And one of the things they tell me is the medium is the message when you're disciplining your kids. When you want your kids to be calm, you're probably not going to go the route of, I said everybody needs to be calm now. Not going to help. Because by the way that you communicate something, you're communicating what you want to happen. The medium plays a part in, in what you want to communicate. By saying it in a calm way, you're communicating to them that you want them to calm down. Okay? Think of the gospel. Think of incarnation, Christ coming to earth. Think of the cross. It's not just that they happened. It's how they happened that helps us understand what's going on. It's not just that God came to earth. It's how he came to earth. As simple, as unimpressive, as having no form where anyone would look at him. That's the way that he came to earth, and it helps us understand something about the gospel. It's not just that he died, it's how he died. And Ben going through Psalm 22 and some of the, the description of, of crucifixion, it's how he died that helps us better understand the gospel. That it wasn't just that he came, he showed up, hey, everybody, I'm here. Somebody shot him and he died. It's how he died. It's the things that he went through. It's the trial. It's the cross. 
It's the excruciating pain. It's all of that that helps us understand the gospel. In the same way here, you are in some way the medium of the message of the gospel. It is your weakness that helps people understand the gospel. It's our frail bodies that help as the medium for understanding the gospel. Our weakness and vulnerability plays a vital role in people understanding the treasure of the gospel. Another way of saying this is that by hooking up treasure and jar of clay, that in itself is the gospel. That in itself is the story of the gospel, of what God does to people. By you going out and sharing someone, God takes broken, fragile people and holds them together. You don't have to use an example of anybody else. You can say, I know, look at me. I can tell you he does it because he has done and he is doing it to me. That in itself is the message of the gospel. And so you actually hold the story of the gospel and the fact that you have a treasure in your frail jar of clay. You are the medium that is helping them understand the message. Okay? Turn, please, now to 2 Corinthians 12. And this is where we'll connect again with Brad's sermon. Second Corinthians 12 helps us better understand the relationship between power and weakness. Verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the, of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, he, that it should leave me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, am I content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What this adds to the conversation is that God purposely puts weakness into our lives to show his power. They're not there by accident. Paul saw the weakness in there, the thorn, and Paul asked, please take it away. The response was, why would I take it away? It's put there for a reason. It's put there to show your weakness and contrast it with my power. The power doesn't drive out the weakness. Instead, the power comes in and is best displayed in the weakness. We don't boast in weakness in a bad way. There's a good way and there's a bad way to boast in weakness. What boasting in weakness doesn't mean it doesn't mean we glorify the weakness. It doesn't mean that we worship, that we praise the weakness because ultimately we see that it's God and not the weakness that is changing us. It is God using the weakness. It is God behind the weakness that is ultimately at work. And so we don't glorify the weakness. We glorify the God that's using the weakness. Another way we don't boast in weakness, what it doesn't mean is we don't try to be extra weak in order to help God out by putting the gospel on display. We don't get the mindset of, you know, back in, back in Romans when it says, well, should we sin so that grace will increase all the more? Paul said, he says, in Greek, he basically says, are you crazy? That, that in no way lines up with, with gospel. And so we don't need to take it upon ourselves to say, you know what would make the gospel look really, really good? If I was a super, super sinful today, if I was as sinful as I could possibly be, that would help God in showing the contrast 
And God says, oh, thanks, I needed the help. The gospel doesn't need your help. The gospel doesn't need your help to look good. Trust me, we're all doing well enough on our own in the sin department. We don't need to try to kick things up in that area. The gospel is already on display and in contrast to the sin that we already have in our lives. And so boasting in our weakness doesn't mean that we in any way try to be extra weak so that we can help, look the, go- help the gospel look any better. Another thing that boasting in our weakness doesn't mean is that we use our weakness as an excuse to sin. We don't say, well, I don't really want to sin, but what can you do? I'm not perfect. I really don't like the phrase when somebody uses, well, nobody's perfect. Nobody's asking you to be perfect, okay? We're asking you to walk in obedience knowing that you're going to, to fall. Um, but you don't use the, weak, the weakness as an excuse to say, well, what can you do? God probably doesn't really care even that I sin because I'm weak. That's not what boasting and weakness is. The best definition, for lack of a better term, I can come up with for boasting and weakness, we talked about what it's not, what boasting and weakness is. It's embracing your weakness as a means for God to destroy your pride and make you more content and satisfied in him. That's boasting and weakness. It's embracing your weakness as a means for God to destroy your pride and make you more content and satisfied in him, him alone. And so holding jar of clay, treasure together, what are some final implications that this has on our ministry? One side note implication because we talked about ministry in terms of all of us are ministering. I want to take a little parenthesis real quick and say this actually should affect in some ways how you view the church leaders, how you view elders, how you view deacons here, how you view overseas people. Come to find out overseas people also aren't perfect. Uh, we are also jars of clay. This should affect how you view them. They're not the golden chalice nor do they think they are. They're very well aware that they too are simply a jar of clay holding the treasure, relying on God every second to hold them together. Don't expect them to be anything more than that. You look to them as leaders and you look to them for leadership and helping pour into you along the way. Don't expect them to be Christ to you. They're not what Ben would call a functional savior. Um, Christ is holding you together. Christ is holding them together. And so understanding that all of us are jars of clay holding a treasure helps us hopefully better understand a little bit how we interact with, with the elders, with the deacons. They're a jar of clay. They're a jar of clay that's been given leadership and responsibility, and there is a weight and there's a heaviness in everything that goes along with that. Um, and I have a deep, deep respect for, for the elders and for the deacons here. They are jars of clay, like me, like you. And so hopefully that affects a little bit how we interact with church leadership. One of the other implications this has is it takes the pressure off of ministry. Stepping away from the idea of ministry as church leadership again, looking back as ministry and sharing Christ with others. This takes the pressure off of ministry. Because going back to expendable, this isn't all relying on you and your best thoughts and you bringing your A game for the day. 
This is relying on God. God only has an A game. He brings it all the time, and he is perfect. And so ministry isn't ultimately relying on you. That doesn't mean you don't have responsibility. You're walking in obedience. You're doing all of those things, but you're not putting the weight of people's responses on your shoulders. You are not the changer of hearts. You are not the shaper of lives. You are a jar of clay holding a treasure. It takes the pressure off of ministry. We need to hold these things in balance if we're going to walk in a healthy way. Without the treasure, there's no gospel. Without the jar of clay, there's no context. And so we need to understand that there is a treasure that is of inestimable worth. And we need to understand that it comes in the package of a clay pot. Both of those things together help explain the gospel. That's what we were talking about at the beginning. I said these next two weeks we're going to be talking through um, the, the principle, the core value that is going to help shape our minds every single time we go out in ministry. That's it. Every time you walk out in service, remember that you are a clay pot holding a treasure. That's going to help you minister in a Christ-like way. That was going to help you keep, keep things in balance because you see that the treasure is there, that it's beautiful and valued, that it's the highest priority in your life and that you want to give it away to be the highest priority in the lives of the people around you. And you also see that it comes in the package of a jar of clay that is fragile, that is expendable, that is simple and unimpressive. You need to have both of those in mind as you go outside the walls and minister. You need to have that in mind as you stay in the walls and minister to the person beside you today. Let's pray. Father, you are incredible. The way that you work is beyond our comprehension and that makes us worship you all the more. Father, these are truths that I continually need to run me through. I need to hear this regularly. I need the reminder. Father, as we walk this week, let us not leave these truths behind. Father, let us walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Open our eyes that we'll see the needs around us we will see the needs of a lost, hurting, and dark world. That you would allow us to step in, even as a fragile jar, into dangerous places that should break us so that we can help give the treasure. You are indeed great, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths that wash over us bringing us back where we need to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In preparation for the Lord's Supper this morning, 
I'd like for you, if you would, turn to John chapter 21. As you're turning there, let me just encourage you to, if you're of the program of just uh, coming to church because it's Sunday morning and it's what you do, there's the potential to come and go this morning and miss out on what just took place. And what you just heard, I want to let you know if that's your sort of your routine. You just missed out on being equipped and you're going to come and go without engaging it. If, on the other hand, you gather corporately weekly to worship with God's people, to enjoy fellowship with God's people, to sing to God, to drown out the sounds of the mockers by the worship and praise. But if you come to be equipped, that was an equipping sermon. If you're right now thinking, okay, I'm not sure how equipped I am, you need to go listen to it again, and you need to plan on being part of small group. That's where we connect the dots. It should also take place on a family level where families over the course of the week, as you sit, time, sit and pray together or read together or sit over a dinner table, talk about what did God say Sunday? Somebody climbed the mountain to hear from God, and that's what we just did. But it takes some time to be processed. And it's in the processing that you find that, oh, man, I'm equipped for something. You're not just equipped to go to church. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's laughable to me because that's where I spent most of my life. I mean, being a Christian, is just, you just go to church. And it didn't mean I didn't love Jesus that I, when I was in that place. But I, it wasn't until I got here that I realized, wait a second, we're being equipped for something to go do and be and enjoy and worship and be an aroma and be salty and bright. If you're thinking that way, then what you just heard was an equipping sermon. And I'm thankful for the guy who climbed the mountain. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit who prepared it in you and who preached in spite of you. Thankful for that, all of those things. So if you have, you have work yet to do for it to find a home in you. As far as the Lord's Supper goes this morning, I, um, man, I've seen God's timing and sovereignty and providence and goodness in leading me in, in Lord's Supper preparation to a place that comes right alongside the message this morning. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Now, after this, I'm just going to take about two seconds and show you what after this is referring to. After the cross after the resurrection, but specifically, we're going to look at a guy named Peter and realize that after this is pointing back to some of these occasions, like where Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet. This is the night before. It's chapters earlier, but the night before, he's crucified. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said, Ha, 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 Lord, do you wash uh, my feet? And Jesus said to him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus, he must have thought himself a golden chalice. 
Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Plenty of opportunities to see Peter as the alpha illustration of a lump of clay. That's just the first one in John that comes to mind. In verse 36 of the same chapter, Jesus says to him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. This is hours before what happens in a moment. Jesus says to him, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow uh, or will not crow till you've denied me three times. And then just a few chapters later in in chapter 18, Jesus is arrested. He goes before the high priest, and Peter denies him just like Jesus said he would three times, and then they make eye contact across the courtyard, and then the rooster crows. It's this Peter that I want you to watch as we continue on in chapter 21. Jesus revealed himself to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two of of the others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, I can't imagine they didn't answer him emphatically, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So imagine they rolled their eyes and they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, the same guy that is so great at showing his backside, the same guy that I identify with so often that I hope you do too. If you don't, then I promise you, you're blind to your own condition. Peter's like the alpha worshiper. He is. You just got to love him. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples, though, came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Just for the next few moments, Envision these two little tables being a charcoal fire. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was torn, was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. A forgiving and graceful king says to the likes of Peter and the likes of you and me, come and have breakfast. That's the scandal of the gospel right there. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. 
in the spirit of this little story, in the spirit of this sermon, in the spirit of the scandal of the gospel, that he puts such treasure in the likes of you and me. Let's take our supper together. A little qualifier for taking this. If you see yourself as a pinch and a lump of clay, come have breakfast, take and eat. I don't know why, but I love irony. And when you really consider the gospel for what it is, you can't help but see the irony in it. That he would take something so fine and place it in something so feeble and common and frail. Man wouldn't make it up. It's self-validating. <laughs> it speaks for itself. Man would not make this up because it makes very little of man and very much of God. I think about the irony that he tells this same Peter that we considered this morning. I'm going to build my church on you. What? You see him looking around behind him? You talking to somebody else? No, you, Peter. And then this same frail, feeble, lump, pinch of clay goes on just a couple chapters later in the beginning of Acts to preach the bold message of Pentecost. It gives me goosebumps. It's irony, good irony. If you're enjoying this God right now and enjoying the irony and enjoying that he would put something so fine and something so feeble and frail and common, then let's take and drink as an act of worship. I'm going to pray. God, in these next couple minutes, we continue in song. We continue in worship by giving. Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts from giving out of compulsion or out of duty or singing just because the song is unfolding, but that as an in response to where we've been this morning, marveling that you would put something so great and something so common and frail feeble. Pray that we give out of that marvel, that we sing out of that wonder, and that you'll be enjoyed as we do so. In Christ's name we pray.